Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This Sunday will be the second Sunday in the season of Lent, and it's still year B, and will be until November, so we'll keep that in mind. But the Old Testament reading is going to be from the book of Genesis, chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, and verses 15 to 16. The epistle text is from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, and then the gospel reading is Mark chapter 8, 27 to 38. I'm having trouble honestly telling you what's going on with why the gospel readings have been picked the way that they have been as we move through the season. It's not going to be until the season of Pentecost here and a few months away still, uh, it's really the beginning of June, that we're just going to start going straight through Mark. So we had Mark 1, in fact we've had Mark 1, different chunks of it, several times with overlap and repetition, and last weekend we saw Mark 1 again. The weekend before that, we had Mark 9. That one made sense. It was Transfiguration of Our Lord Sunday, and so we had the Transfiguration account. Today, we're going to get Mark chapter 8, and it's the account of Peter's confession, and then Jesus foretelling his death and his resurrection. And then we're going to leave Mark for a couple of weeks. We'll pop back in with Mark 10, then we'll have the Passion account, uh, just in time for Passion Sunday. We'll get the Easter narrative of Mark chapter 16 on Easter. And then we leave Mark entirely for a couple of months. So, again, not sure exactly what all is going on there. Why we don't have more of, of the early parts of Mark early in the year. But we just don't. Uh, and so we'll do Mark chapter 8 today. And you'll have to wait until June uh, for us to be able to kind of come back, circle back, go back to nearly the beginning of the gospel, and and walk through what Mark has to share about the life and ministry of Jesus. But first, we start with Genesis 17, and again, it's verses 1 through 7, and then a gap, and then we pick up verses 15 and 16 of the text. So we'll read that in two separate paragraphs, uh, so we'll start with 1 to 7. When Abraham Sorry, when Abram was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you, and to your offspring after you. Abram appears in Genesis chapter 12. That's the first time we meet him as God calls him to leave behind his people, leave behind all that he knows, essentially, and go wherever God tells him to go. Uh, it's an, a, an extreme account of faith, as Abraham trusts in that, and he goes. At that time, Abram is 75 years old. The promise comes that he's going to be made into a father of, of many nations. Uh, this covenant language that God is going to use is going to come again and again with him. 
he and his wife Sarai are going to have trouble trusting in the Lord's promise. They're going to try and take matters into their own hands, which just creates a mess. And at the age of 86, 11 years after his, his first call, Abram becomes a father for the first time uh, by Sarai's hand servant, handmaiden, whatever you want to call her, Hagar. And Hagar bears a son by the name of Ishmael. That's going to come up later in the text again. That's 86 years old. And now, 13 years later, Abram is 99 years old. God has promised him a son by whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I mean, we see this promise reappearing several times through the section of Genesis. And so we'll take a, a peek at those just a bit. But for now, God has appeared to him again. So definitely not the first time. And he speaks and he reminds him. The very first words out of his mouth are who he is. I am God Almighty. And that's a that's both the and just the greeting so that Abram knows who it is that's talking to him, but also the reminder that Yahweh is Abram's God. And he then instructs him in two things. Walk before me and be blameless. Honestly, the Christian today is called to these two things as well. To walk before the Lord is to follow in his ways. It's to do what the Lord gives you to do. And that leads still into the second part, which is to be blameless. Keep God's commands. Do what the Lord gives you to do and do so perfectly. That's a tall order, and it's an order we know we don't keep. Uh, we've all fallen short. We've all sinned. And, and we deserve God's wrath. But we thankfully don't get it. That's going to be the Romans text uh, as the epistle here coming up in just a little bit. So the Lord says, walk before me, be blameless, that I may make. So God is establishing the covenant with Abram based on Abram's faithfulness. Now we do see Abram in many places show that faithfulness. And we even see God crediting Abram's belief as righteousness, which connects to blamelessness a little bit at least. God is going to make a covenant, which we see back in 12.2 already, chapter 12, verse 2. It's really what chapter 15 is all about. Uh, to your offspring I will give this land is the promise that is there. But we actually see God and Abram making a covenant together. God puts Abram to sleep and actually passes through the blood of the sacrifices by himself. So it's, it ends up being God alone who's bound to bear the weight of that covenant which has great implications on the idea of our sin, uh, our breaking of the covenant, and that God himself would have to pay the price to make things right again, which, again, gets us into Romans in our epistle text. God has promised that he will multiply Abram greatly. And again, that goes all the way back to chapter 12, verse 2. And so with these words, that simple sentence being said, Abram responds by falling on his face. That's a posture of worship. Perhaps also fear. Could very well be both. Um, to rightly be afraid of the God who is omniscient, all-knowing, and om omnipotent, all-powerful. And 
in that spot, God then speaks to him again, reminding him of the covenant that he has made with him. My covenant is with you. You shall be. The promise continues to endure the father of a multitude of nations. Abram's 99 years old. How does that promise sound? I don't expect that a 99-year-old is going to listen to this podcast, but if you're 99 and you're listening to the podcast, how would that make you feel to have God speak to you and say that you're going to become the father of many nations? But God continues on, and this is one of the, this is a profound moment for Abram, let's put it that way. God changes his name. No longer shall your name be called Abram. Abram in Hebrew means exalted father. Uh, the Hebrew people were very particular about naming children. You didn't just name a child something because you liked the sound of it. I'm sure there are people that did that. But by and large, the names that we see have meanings to them. And they're intentional in their meanings, too. Uh, so Abram here has a, a name that's... Exalted father, Av is the Hebrew word for father. An exalted father, that's a that's a name that's attempting to bestow a blessing. You know, as, as Abraham's father named him, as Abram's father named him, the hope that he would someday have, you know, children and be be praised by his kids for being a good dad. I mean, you could almost pull that kind of a meaning out of that name. But what does God do with it? He takes it away. He replaces his name with a new name, Avraham, uh, Abraham, God of many nations. So it connects it right back to the covenant promise that he would become a multitude of nations. So God changes Abraham's name. Why does he do it? <laughs> For I have made you. Uh, He's already declared this to be true. So you've got the power of God's spoken word in play here. Uh, going back to Genesis 1, the creation account, that God could simply speak things into existence. And this continues to be true. Because he has already declared this of Abraham, it's as good as done. But why does he change his name? I think, and this is the thought, I mean, God doesn't actually say this, but it seems to be a, a simple educated guess. God changes Abraham's name to be an ongoing reminder to him of the covenant promise. Abraham and Sarai, soon to be Sarah, have had a whole bunch of trouble trusting that God will keep this promise. And so every time, moving forward, 99-year-old Abraham hears his name from his relatives, from his wife, from his uh, servants and his household, from... You know, Abimelech, the king that he's going to interact with, you know, from whoever. Whenever they call him Abraham, it's going to be a reminder to him, a verbal reminder of who he is and the promise that he has been given by God Almighty. 99 years of his life, he's been called Avram. Now he's going to be called Avraham. There's a difference there. And it's going to matter. It's going to mean something. He's going to see it. He's going to hear it. And so the constant pointing back to God's promise is the purpose behind this name shift for this man. 
we're going to see it coming up with, with his wife, Sarai, as well. God doesn't do this very often. I did a sermon series on this when I was, well, pretty fresh still as a pastor out of seminary. Um, I did a sermon series on an Advent. I think we had an Advent one that year where we had four Wednesdays in Advent. So I was able to do four different sermons on the times God changed people's names. So this was one of them, Abram and Sarai to Abraham and Sarah. And then there's, let's see if I can recall who else there is. There's the children of Hosea, which has has been my most read sermon online. And I think that's in part thanks to the Jewish community, maybe. Uh, just the, the Old Testament study on those names has been linked to various other websites, and so that's picked up some views. So I've made sure I've gone back. I've redone that sermon. I've included a whole bunch more gospel than I did the first time I preached it so that whoever these random people are that are stumbling across it, hoping to learn a little bit about Hosea and his kids, they get to hear the gospel too. So hopefully that's helpful. I'm trying to remember the others. I certainly remember that there's one whose name is Pashur, and God changes his name to Magor Misaviv, which means terror on every side. That's a bad name change. Hosea's kids was a good name change. They were named terrible things, and they get flipped to be good things. Jacob to Israel is the other, is the fourth. Probably the second one that I did. So you've got those those examples, and really, there aren't many more than that. There are other name changes in Scripture, uh, but they're not directly linked to God himself being the one that does them. So you can think of Naomi in the book of Ruth, Ruth changing her name to Mara. Uh, so from pleasant to bitter, you can think of Paul, Saul, Paul in the, the epistles of the, the Bible, the apostle. Peter is one that we might attribute to the Lord there. I mean, you shall be called Peter. His name was Simon. And from that point on, he's known as Peter or Cephas, depending on the language that people were speaking. Both are words for rock. So you can attribute that one to the Lord. Jesus did it. Those are some examples. But this is the first one. The first major one that we see happening in Scripture. And so the promise is an ongoing promise. It's a daily reminder to him now moving forward for the rest of his life that he's going to have this. Um, that the Lord will be faithful and the Lord will keep his promise. So verse 6, he's going to make him exceedingly fruitful. Again, the reminder of what this promise is about. For a 99-year-old man, this sounds ridiculous. But the promise is there. He's going to make him into nations. And that's indeed going to be true. So immediately to Abraham, you've got Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael's already born. He's 13 years old at the time of this chapter being written. Well, I guess not written. At the time of this event being re recounted by Moses. Moses lived much later. So Ishmael is going to become a nation of his own. We know Ishmael gives birth to the Arab tribes uh, that go on to be the really the Islamic tribes, so that the nation 
well, not the nation, but the, the people of Islam, the faith, the religion, Muslims, as, as we call the, the individuals in that faith, they trace themselves back to Ishmael. So that is certainly nations, as the Arabic tribes became multiple nations on their own. And then you've got uh, one of those in particular is referenced in scripture as the Hittites. Um, so one of Ishmael's daughter's descendants, Basemath, is going to marry a grandson. So yeah, one of Ishmael's daughters will marry one of Isaac's sons, much to the the well, displeasure of Isaac and his wife, Rebecca. So it's Esau marrying Basemath, the Hittite. So that, that nation comes from him. Uh, we see specifically Isaac is going to become two nations himself. So Isaac will have, I guess Isaac, you could say, becomes three nations because Isaac has Esau and Jacob. Esau becomes the nation of the Edomites which is located pretty much just to the south of the Salt Sea. Um, also, the Midianites could be said to come from, from Abraham's descendants. we got to double back here to, to Jacob in just a moment. Uh, the Midianites could be seen as that. and They're a nomadic tribe, so maybe not necessarily a physical nation, but an, an, a nation group of people at least. And then you've got Jacob, who becomes Israel. Israel, the nation... And then Israel splits in two. So you've got Israel and you've got Judah. So you've got all these different nations that do come from Abraham that we can see in the scriptures already. And the promise that kings will come from him. So, yeah, I mean, that's true. Uh, Edom is going to have its king. Uh, and the king from Edom that we see referenced in, in the Exodus account as the Israelites are wandering the wilderness. Yeah, he doesn't do so well. He refuses to aid his brother's people, he refuses to aid the nation of Israel and instead brings his army against them just as a, a precaution that they won't enter his land. They don't battle, unlike another king, uh, but the threat is still there. The forcefulness is still there. So Edom has kings. The Arabs are going to have their kings from Ishmael's line. Many of the kings from Abraham are recorded in Scripture because of the nations of Israel and Judah. You can read about their kings in the books of kings, uh, starting really with the book of Samuel. And you see Saul, and then David, and then Solomon, and then Rehoboam, and then Jeroboam. Uh, so that just gets you started. Uh, and that, that genealogy continues down, and kings and kings and kings keep coming. And there's the promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, um, specifically, I think verse 15, 16, somewhere in there, that one particular king is going to come who reigns on that throne forever, and that is Jesus. So this promise, this covenant made with Abraham, still bears that, that promise, that connection to the Messiah who will come to save God's people. So I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So there's the covenant. He's going to be their God. That's the promise God is making um, over all of this. And this old covenant, as we would refer to it, is going to be replaced and you can talk about the, the covenant God makes with Moses on Sinai. 
um, really those two things kind of go together to form the old covenant as we think about it. It's not until Maundy Thursday, uh, as we get the language of the new covenant in Jesus' blood, as he shares with his disciples. We call it the Old Testament and the New Testament when we look at our Bible, but it's framed around these covenants. Uh, so you've got the old covenant focused on from Genesis all the way through Malachi, and then you've got the New Testament, new covenant is focused on from Matthew through Revelation. You and I are part of that new covenant people of God for which we are, are very thankful. And again, that's the Romans epistle text. All right, let's read that second paragraph, verses 15 and 16. God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. You'll notice, essentially, it's the same stuff going on for Sarai, Sarah, as it was for Abram, Abraham. It's the same promise that God will bless her. She's going to become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. This is true. Uh, we can take out the conversation around Ishmael and the Arabs uh, because that's not through her. That's through Hagar. But she still has Isaac, who has Jacob and Esau, which gives us, again, the, the Israelites, the Judaites, and the Edomites, and all the kings of those three nations. God is going to give a son by her. And this is what the chapter is going to end up going into and as it would continue onward. She's 90 when she gives birth to this boy. So if you're, uh, I said I don't expect any 99-year-olds are listening to the podcast necessarily. I'm not sure if any 90-year-olds are either. But if you are or if you're getting close to 90, uh, what a blessing from the Lord. But imagine being told you'd have a son. She laughed, and that's why they name him Isaac, which is Hebrew for laughter, but that gets into the next account, so we'll stay here where we are. Her name, Sarai, and Sarah, both of them, as far as I can tell in the Hebrew language, mean princess. I don't think that there's anything different in terms of meaning in the name, but the, the change, the shift, still has the same weight of impact, right? That her name has been changed is an ongoing reminder to her every time somebody calls her by name, every time her husband speaks to her. You know, I don't know how many times I say my wife's name throughout the week, but it's a lot. Every time Abraham addresses his bride, every time the, the rest of the household would speak to her, Whoever they're interacting with in the market, as they, as the name is shared, it's that ongoing reminder that God has made this promise and he's going to keep it. So it's a great, great reminder, both to Abraham, the, the father, and Sarah, the mother. The epistle text for the day is going to be Romans chapter 5. It's verses 1 through 11. Two paragraphs again. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts 
through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we'll start out with that word justified back in verse 1. To be justified is to be made right. So in context of our faith, we are justified before God. We are made right with God again. Uh, that's, a, that's in contrast to our sinfulness, our rebellion against God. I mean, that's what sin is. We choose to live life how we want rather than to live the life that he created us to live. And we do it every day. And so that rebellion against God is what what leads to our death. But here God has justified us. He's made us right with him. How did he do it? By faith. You know, many Christians today think that they somehow have to cooperate in that part of salvation, but but we don't. We can't. Ephesians 2 describes us, and also Paul writing, as being dead in our trespasses. What dead man do you know that can do stuff? that can act, that can somehow help you save him. There aren't any. It doesn't work that way. By our sins, we were dead. And yet God saved us. He reconciled us. And that's what this, this chapter is going to be so richly about. We have peace. Now, peace is one of those lovely, I guess it's a noun, uh, it's one of those lovely words that we read and we think we know what it means, but we just gloss over it and we often don't slow down to think about what it is that we just read. What does it mean that we have peace with God? I think we often pair it with the word quiet, which is nice. Uh, you know, it's it's okay. But in this context, that, that's not what this is. We don't want quiet with God. We want him speaking because his word does stuff, namely forgives us, saves us, and that's great. It also still creates to this day, I would guess. So his word is good. We don't want quiet. We want peace. Think of war. Think of two nations that hate each other and have been fighting against each other, and all of a sudden they come to that point where they finally sign a peace treaty with each other. There is no more fighting. There's no more violence. There's no more conflict between the two of them. The war is over. The battle done. Or you think of the two kids, you know, the brother and brothers or sisters or brother and sister in the house. They're fighting and fighting and fighting. And mom and dad just want peace. They want the, they want the fighting to come to an end. That's what we have here. God has ended our rebellion. He has justified us. He has made us right. We are at peace with him. There is no ongoing war. The wrath of God will not be poured out upon his people. That's an incredible thing. And so how does it come? How does this peace of God come to us? It comes to us through our Lord Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice, which is what Paul is going to unpack in the verses to come. It is by his death his death on the cross, that we are saved, that we are justified, that we are made at peace with God. Through Jesus, we have also obtained access so we can enter um, or we can receive. Probably that receive word would work best here in this picture. Uh, we have received by faith, so again, trusting in his promise, 
Just as Abraham, by faith, trusted in the promise, he was called to do so, we trust in the promise God gives to us of Jesus. Right? We have been brought, we've been given, we've received this grace. Grace is a word that means gift of God. Uh, and so what are the gifts of God that we have received? Forgiveness. All of our sins are forgiven. Life that we get to live forever. Salvation that we are delivered from death. We are delivered from the devil. Paradise. Another word we could throw out there in that list of wondrous gifts that the Lord provides to his people. So we've got these things. And then, hey, what a deep phrase that's coming up. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Again, so many little words that we take for granted. What's it mean to rejoice? Well, it means to have joy in something. Okay, well, what's joy? Too often we make joy this feeling of happiness. You don't have to be happy to have joy. Can you? Yeah, they can go together, but they don't have to. Uh, I stress that because oftentimes Christians who are suffering from things like depression in this world, they're told they have to have joy, and, and they mistakenly think it's happiness. And so when they're depressed, when they're sad, when they're down, they start to question their faith. That's not helpful. We all get sad. We all get mad. And in those moments, we still have our joy. Because joy, the best way I like to describe joy is treasure. Jesus said, for, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Uh, Matthew chapter 6. And I think that helps us to understand this word joy. Our joy is Christ. Our joy is in Christ. Our joy is with Christ. It is Christ. Jesus is our treasure. He is our joy. And that is a treasure. It is a joy that cannot be taken away from you. So we rejoice. Um, we, we celebrate the joy that we have. We celebrate the treasure that we have in Jesus. All right, so we rejoice. What do we rejoice in specifically here? Hope. Hope. Another one that we have to unpack. And hope in worldly terms is an uncertain thing, right? I sure hope the weather's nice tomorrow. I, <laughs> I sure hope spring comes soon. I sure hope my favorite sports team wins their championship game. None of those are sure things. The closest that I said was that, that spring would come soon, but even that doesn't have to happen. Spring will come, Lord willing, if he doesn't return first, but it may not come soon. We might have a giant cold snap and, and stay cold for a couple extra months. And that, that's happened, and it could happen again. So worldly hope is wishful thinking. But the hope of faith is not wishful thinking. The hope of faith clings to promises. And to put it simply, we hope in what the Lord has promised. Which gets back to the list of gifts from before. We have hope. We have trust in the promise that he will forgive us. We have hope. We have trust in the promise that he will give us life. We have hope. We have Trust in the promise that he is preparing a place for us that we can live with him forevermore. That he can take us to be with him where he is going. Hope. 
in our faith hope is certain. It is not wishful thinking. It is a guarantee. It is a promise God has spoken. And then glory. Uh, glory is the, the lifting up of uh, pointing to something else. So if I'm, you know, you think of the, the athlete who has a big game and his teammates all throw him on their shoulders and they, they carry him through the crowds and everybody's cheering. They are glorifying that player. They're lifting him up. We're called in scripture to live our lives in such a way that everything that we do gives glory to God. Uh, Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 31 says, uh, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Uh, some of the very similar, I think even shorter than that in Colossians, maybe chapter 3. Jesus glorified the Father. Everything the Son did was to point us back to the Father. The Spirit glorifies Jesus. I mean, you think about the Spirit's work. The Spirit's tasks are to create faith. So the Spirit causes us to trust in Christ. The Spirit brings us to repentance so that we see the, the wondrous gift of Christ on the cross that forgives our sins. Uh, the Spirit sustains our faith. So these things glorify Jesus, who in turn glorifies the Father. So we rejoice, we take joy in, we celebrate the treasure, the hope that we have in God's glory, which is everything God has done, everything that exalts him, the things that lift him up. When we talk about who God is, we talk about his character. We talk about what he's done. How do you describe God? Well, God is the one who made the world. God is the one who saved me. Those kinds of statements are the glory that we're talking about right here. So a really deep first two verses of this text. Now, it transitions. And this is one that we miss in American culture entirely. We, we've missed this one, and it shows. Not only do we rejoice in the hope and the promises of Jesus, we rejoice, we take joy in, we celebrate Jesus in our sufferings. The American culture has as its primary, its chief goal in life, uh, the fancy word is hedonism, which is the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. That seems to be, in my view of, of the world around me today, what people live for. Let's have as much pleasure. Let's have as much fun. Let's get as much happiness, success as we possibly can. And along the way, let's avoid pain and suffering as much as we possibly can. That's the American life. It's the American dream, the American goal. And Christians living in the United States have bought it. We've given ourselves over to that goal. And here's the problem. If we seek to avoid suffering, we seek to reject this. We rejoice in our sufferings. Why do we rejoice in our sufferings? Well, Paul's going to go on explaining that. And this is the problem. Our sufferings lead us to know the following things. Suffering produces endurance. So there's one. Endurance produces character, there's two. Character produces hope, there's three. Hope does not put us to shame, four, because God's love has been poured into our hearts. 
Our sufferings produce endurance. When we suffer, we learn patience. We learn how to fight through trial. We learn how to endure the test that is to come. I mean, you think of uh, the analogy that's used in Scripture elsewhere, the essentially the, the purifying of metal. You know, you take metal and you work it, and when you when you boil metal, when you when you heat it up super hot, uh, it, it starts to work out the the impurities in the metal. It makes the metal stronger, better, and if you do it again, even more so. And you do it again, even more so, and so we are being tested. We are being, uh, well, we're being given over to suffering so that we endure, so that our faith is strengthened, so that we become stronger. So endurance. And there's a lot to be said about that in the New Testament. The one who endures to the end will receive the crown of life. I don't know about you, but I'd love to have that crown of life. That's paradise. That's the reference to living with God forevermore. I want to be there, and I want to see you there. I want to be there together. We don't make it if we don't endure. Suffering gives endurance. Endurance produces character. Just like we've talked about God's character before, um, and his character being what he does, so the Christian in, in their suffering, and through their enduring those sufferings and those trials, you see their character. This becomes a major theme in 1 Peter. As Peter writes a letter to a Christian churches, uh, essentially the five churches that would be in modern-day Turkey, they're suffering. They are suffering at the hands of the Roman Empire who has decided to turn itself against the church and persecute the Christians. And Peter writes them this beautiful letter about suffering and how suffering is a gift from God and that in the midst of their suffering, by their character, by their behavior, by their attitude in the midst of that suffering, they have the opportunity to share their faith. When your neighbor is persecuting you, when they're you know, throwing you in jail or beating you or, or doing terrible things to you, they see how you act. And if you still are filled with hope in Jesus, they're going to be puzzled. They're going to want to know why. That opens the door to speaking the gospel. If they see you enduring suffering, if they see you enduring punishment and, and standing up to, to the various trials that normal men cannot stand up to, they're going to wonder why. What gives you the strength to go on? Why are you so willing to receive this punishment that, quite honestly, you've done nothing to deserve? And that gives you the open door to share the gospel. That, that theme shows up throughout. It's a recurring theme in First Peter, in the letter that he writes to the suffering Christians. So our character comes out, and we, we get to show our endurance. We get to show our faith. We get to show our hope. We get to show, with respect and gentleness, the reason why we have that. Character produces that hope. We cling to those promises. We cling to what God has given. And hope does not put us to shame. Because it's not wishful thinking. A great story, the tradition about what happened to a Christian brother of ours in the third, I think early third century, maybe it was the late second century. His name's Polycarp. P-O-L-Y-C-A-R-P. Christian leader of the church at the time. And... 
very faithful man. And the Romans decided to turn on him. They decided they were going to arrest him and kill him uh, for the crime of being a Christian. And when the soldiers came to arrest him, he invited them into the home. He offered them a meal. And as he, as they ate, he asked if he could simply pray while they did. They stayed in that home for an hour. And when the meal was over, they took him with them, bound. Well, I think they would have bound him, but he said they had no need to because he would gladly go. And they led him off to his execution. He was going to be burned at the stake. And once again, he, he told them as they were going to tie him to the stake, there's no need to. He would stand there willingly. Gave him the opportunity to share his faith. There's, there's so many stories like that in the early church of, of soldiers who were converted by the people they were supposed to kill, by the Christians they were supposed to put to death for faith. Many of them even to the point where they were converted and they laid down their life next to the person that they were supposed to kill. So they, they brought the person in for the execution and they joined that person in being executed because they stood alongside them and said, I believe this too. That hope, that hope, I mean, those, I hope those, those kinds of stories give you goosebumps. I know they impact me. I mean, may the Lord give me such a faith. May he give me that endurance. May he give me that character. May he give me that hope. But therein lies the problem within American Christians giving themselves over to hedonism, to the pursuit of pleasure at all costs and the avoidance of pain. If we don't suffer, we lose out on these other gifts. Without suffering, we don't learn to endure. We don't learn character. We don't, we don't learn to cling to the hope that we have in Jesus. We learn to cling to the, the wishful thinking hope of the world of a good life now. And I think that is a plague on our church throughout this land. And I, I don't say that as being specific to any denomination, to TV preachers or, or to Catholics or Lutherans or Baptists or non-denominational or Pentecostal or whatever. I think it's a plague on all of us. Living in wealth and luxury and comfort in this land, I think, has caused that. And I think our youth are a lot wiser to it than we know. They're growing up. They're realizing that the hope of this world, the wishful thinking of this world, is all they need. They have a good enough life now. There is no suffering not true suffering that drives them to something greater. And so then they do suffer because they do suffer. I'm not saying they don't. Our youth today are riddled with loneliness, despair, all kinds of things because they're seeking after this worldly happiness and it's elusive. It's the, it's the old metaphorical carrot on a stick in front of the horse 
You put it there, the horse chases after it until it tires out and can't go any further, and it never got that carrot. It could never reach it. It could never attain it. And so happiness is that carrot on a stick, and our youth wear out. But they weren't suffering for the hope that they have in Jesus, so they didn't learn to endure, and their faith is, well, sadly prone to crumble. They become the the seeds of the sower in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of Jesus, that are scattered on rocky soil or amongst the weeds. May we give our youth, may we help cultivate good soil in our kids. May we teach them what faith is all about, that they may endure. Man, look at that. We've only got the first paragraph done and our time for this reading would be up. So let's go through the second paragraph too because it's great as well. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So the second paragraph explains the hope that we have in the first. While we were still weak, and that's us, right? Weak, rebellious sinners. At the right time, so the time God chose, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for us. He died for you. He died for me. Praise the Lord. Thanks be to God. One would scarcely die for a righteous person, um, you know, this, this is a reference to the idea that the world hates righteousness in our sin, right? The, the world hates people that they think are perfect. Goody two-shoes. If a person is righteous, it means they're blameless before God. It means they're walking with the Lord. And the world hates people that walk with the Lord because the world hates the Lord. And Jesus told his disciples that if... If the world has hated you, know that it hates you because it hated me first. That's a paraphrase in John chapter 15, I believe that is. So people don't die, usually, for that disliked righteous person. However, for someone the world views as good, not righteous, good. So a worldly opinion of good. We might think of somebody who has power or status or wealth. We might think of the celebrities or the, the, the superstar athlete. People might lay down their lives for those people. The celebrated person in their community, they might lay down their life for them. Maybe. God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So while the world may not be willing to lay down their life for a perfect person, probably not even for a good person, Jesus laid down his life for wicked people. 
If we're honest with ourselves, we'd have a hard time laying down our life for the ones that we love. And yet Jesus is going to lay down his life for his enemies, the ones who hate him, us in our rebellion. And that's profound. That shows you just how deep the love of God is for us, for you. And since, therefore, so uh, we're going to get two of these kinds of statements here at the end of this uh, paragraph. So since, therefore, it's like an if-then statement. Because this first part is true, the second part is also true. Since, therefore, we've been justified, made right with God by his blood, Jesus on the cross, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So Jesus' death on the cross, his shedding of his blood, sacrifice for you, his laying down of his life for you, O sinner, saves you from the wrath of God that you deserved, that I deserved. For our rebellion, the war we declared on God and the attempts that we made to destroy him and his creation, not that we ever could, but we tried. You are saved from this, Christian. And again, another if-then uh, statement in verse 10. So if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, uh, reconciled by definition in the dictionary, I looked it up, restored friendship or harmony. So we've been restored to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So if his death did this good thing of making you right with God, what more does it mean that he lives? It means we live. Paul unpacks that, especially 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the resurrection chapter, as we've so named it. Uh, Christ's resurrection conquers death, destroys death, breaks the bonds of death, and so death cannot hold him. And because he is your Lord, if it cannot hold him, it cannot hold you. You are a co-heir with Christ. You get to inherit paradise with Christ. You get to live with him forever. So his death frees you, and his life frees you. So it's another one of those if-thens again. And if the first part's true, the second part is true, and they are both indeed true. So we rejoice in God, we celebrate in God, we take joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So all praise be to Jesus for his death and for his resurrection and for saving us, rescuing us from sin, death, and the devil. That leaves us with our gospel reading today, and our gospel is broken across three different paragraphs here. It's Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 38, and you see a stark contrast between these, these paragraphs, especially the first and the second, um, but the third one is, is a very deep one too, so let's read them one at a time and unpack what we have. Verse 27, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So here you can get a picture of Jesus and the disciples. They're walking along the road together. It's a road trip but they don't have cars. So they're on, the, they're, they're on foot, walking 
northward. Caesarea Philippi is in very northern Galilee. Uh, it's 25, maybe 30 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, right there on the same river. Um, so they're, they're making that trip together. And as they're going, as they're walking up there to, of course, share the gospel and do what Jesus has come to do, Jesus takes the time to teach them and to talk to them, interact with them, instruct them about, about everything that is to come. And so he starts with a question, as he often does. He, Jesus seems to be a fan of the Socratic method where you teach by asking questions. And so he invites them to, to understand and to think this through. And he asks, who do people say that I am? And they have several answers. John the Baptist, uh, Herod would fall into that camp. Herod hears of Jesus and thinks it's John raised from the dead because he's executed John. So he thinks Jesus is like a ghost, a spirit that's come back to haunt him and, and take revenge against him. And that's why he's got supernatural power. Others are saying Elijah. There's a promise in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, that before the day of the Lord, before the day of Yahweh would come, that God would send Elijah the prophet back. Now, if you pay attention to the teachings of Jesus, Jesus himself will reveal that that is actually John. And it's less, it's, it's quite specifically a functional thing rather than a name. It's not like Elijah the man, but it's Elijah the function. He was the chief prophet in the Old Testament in the eyes of, of the, the Old Testament people. So Jesus makes that connection that Malachi 4 5 is fulfilled by John. But anyway, some are saying that Jesus is Elijah, so that means they're thinking that the, the end is drawing near. And others say he's, he's one of the prophets. So he's a prophet of God, which is a prophet is someone who speaks God's word to his people. So these are some fairly lofty opinions of Jesus. They're not right, but they're acknowledging that there is something important about this guy, that he is faithful, he is of God. So that's good. They're, on, they're at least on the right track here. But then Jesus doubles back and he asks them specifically who they believe that he is. So, okay, we've talked about what the crowds think. What do you think? Who do you say Jesus is? And Peter gives that profound answer. You are the Christ. Now, it's shortened. Mark shortens this answer. Matthew's answer uh, recorded of Peter is longer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Mark reserves those words, Son of God, and his gospel for only the Roman centurion at the foot of the cross. Uh, we believe there's the intentionality of that in, in preaching to the Romans, that Mark is, is sending this letter to the Romans and wants to invite them into the kingdom. And so he, he elevates a Roman for that purpose. And so Mark shortens what Peter says here just so that he can keep that picture going, uh, that theme of his book. But it's, it's still a strong statement, right? What is the Christ? Well, Christ is the Greek word, for anointed one, Christos means anointed one. It's the Messiah of the Old Testament. The Hebrew word Mashiach, where we get Messiah, means anointed one. Peter just confessed that he believes Jesus is the one that the church has been waiting for basically since the beginning of time. The Messiah is promised to us in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's called the Proto-Evangelium, the first good news. You are the Christ. 
Peter believes that Jesus is the one who has come to save God's people. That's a big deal. And how does Jesus respond to that? He strictly charges them to tell no one about him. One of those moments that seems strange in the Gospels, but typically Jesus does this in order that he can keep going about his purpose. We see it for the first time back in Mark chapter 1, I think it's verse 39, that Jesus has been healing those in the crowds that are gathered around him. And, and after you know the night's rest, he wakes up early in the morning and he disappears before the sun is even up. He disappears so that he can get away, he can have some time to himself, and he can pray. And when Peter finally finds him and says, the crowds are looking for you, Jesus' response is somewhere along the lines of saying that they're just going to leave. We must go to other villages also, for that is why I have come. Jesus' mission, Jesus' purpose, is to proclaim that the kingdom of God has come and to proclaim that to all people. And the more that these other things are, are talked about, the more his healings are talked about, the more it's talked about that he's the Christ, he's the Messiah, the harder it's going to be for him to travel, as the crowds are already converging on him all the time, wherever he goes. And if they think he's the Messiah, yeah, they're going to they're gonna come from even further out, and it's going to just get all the harder for him to do what he has to do before he goes to Jerusalem. For his death and his resurrection. So for now, they are strictly charged to not share what they just said. After his death, after his resurrection, uh, well, open up the floodgates, let everybody know everything that Jesus has told you. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Our second paragraph, beginning at verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So we have this beautiful confession of Peter that you are the Christ. And and the very next thing that happens, Jesus is saying, get behind me, Satan. He's calling Peter Satan, the devil, because Peter doesn't get it. So the, this is still the same trip, right? He began to teach them. So as they're on their way still to Caesarea Philippi, after that conversation about who Jesus is, he begins to teach them about who he is. And why he's come. The Son of Man is one of his favorite titles for himself. Must suffer many things. Be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, and be killed. In hindsight, we know this. right? We've seen it. We know why he did it for, for our sakes. To die on the cross for us. But imagine the disciples' view. They think that the Messiah, the Mashiach, the Christ, the Christos. They think that he's going to overthrow Rome. They think that he's going to set up an earthly kingdom and rule over the earth and make them powerful among the other tribes of the world. And so for him to say he's going to die, wait a second, Jesus, that doesn't fit. You're not going to die. 
we won't let that happen. You can see their pride possibly coming in a, in a statement like that. This is the first of the three times that we know of, at least, in the Gospels that Jesus makes this statement. Matthew records three of them. The disciples in none of these seem to notice the last words, after three days rise again. They get hung up on the idea that Jesus is going to die, and they can't get over, over it. They can't get around it. This is true, I think, as we speak today in such a hateful culture that is so divisive, um, that as soon as somebody says something, or as soon as you say something that somebody else doesn't like, they tune the rest of it out. They get offended, they get angry, and they stop paying attention, and they don't listen to the rest of it, even if the rest of it clearly explains that they're wrong in what they heard. So I think we can resonate with that just a little bit. But the disciples just never get it. They never, in these foretellings of death and resurrection, they never hear the resurrection words. It just goes in one ear and out the other, it seems. Although not fully, because we learn from John in John chapter 2, verse 22, that after Jesus did rise from the dead, the disciples recalled these things that he had said, and they believed the scriptures. They believed the words of Jesus. So it takes time, but they get there. Verse 32, he said this plainly, so not a parable. Plain statement, simple speech. And again, the disciples can't bear it. And Jesus rebukes Peter. Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus rebukes him, calls him Satan. Why? Peter is setting his mind on the things of the world, on the things of man, not on the things of God. Peter has his own vision of the Messiah and what the Messiah is going to do for him. And it's not what the Messiah is actually going to do for him. He's not going to save him from worldly powers. He's going to save him from sin, death, and the devil. And if Peter had his way, that wouldn't happen. If we had our way, when the Messiah comes, if we had our way, he wouldn't save us. He'd give us a better life now. I think that profoundly tells you about our sinful nature right there. Jesus didn't come to do what we wanted him to do. He came to do what we needed him to do. And so he tells Peter to get out of the way and let it happen. Last paragraph here. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So now there is a crowd around them again. If that means they've reached the villages, I don't know. Or if they just had other people that were following Jesus at the point on the journey. Whatever. Uh, it's no longer just the disciples in his hearing. It's now the crowds as well that he's gathered to him so he can teach all of them this. If anyone, it's one of those if-then statements like we had in the epistle, if anyone would come after me, let him do this. Let him deny himself. Anyone. That includes you and it includes me. If we want to be followers of Jesus, if we want to go down his path and not Peter's path, not Satan's path, 
if we want to do that, here's what you got to do. Deny yourself. Ouch. (laughs) That's hard, right? Take what you want, take what you think, and set it aside. This life isn't about you. This life isn't about me. It's not about our pride. It's not about what we want. We are not here to live for ourselves. Ouch. Take up his cross. Uh, This could be a reference to dying to ourselves, like the deny himself part just before it. Um, So it could be a repetition there in a sense. Or it could be the idea of whatever is imposed on us because we're called by the name of Christ, which has happened to Christians throughout the centuries ever since. That when they bear the name of Jesus, they are bearing his cross. They're suffering for that name. So it's either deny yourself and, and doubles down on that, deny yourself some more, die to self. Or it's deny yourself, die to self, and be willing to bear the sufferings of Jesus. For Jesus. Follow me. The road of Jesus is not going to be easy. It's not going to be comfortable. It's not going to be luxurious. It's going to be hard. It's going to call for you to empty yourself, to be humble, to trust that he is good. Verse 35, whoever would save his life will lose it. So if you're fighting to keep your life, if you're fighting to be happy and do whatever you want to do, you're going to lose your life. That means you're going to die. And it's not just physical death. He's talking a spiritual death there. He's talking the second death. He's talking about hell. If you seek to save yourself, you will perish forever. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So whoever denies himself, takes up his cross, whoever empties himself, whoever humbles himself, gives up this life and the ambitions of this life to instead follow after Jesus and the gospel, to share the gospel, that one will be saved. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It's a fair question. Which would you rather have? An empty, hard life now with a resurrection that leads to paradise? Or be a trillionaire now with everything and all the power in the world at the fingertips, your fingertips, but go to hell. As a Christian whose heart has been renewed by the Holy Spirit, that choice is easy. I'll take a, a painful life now with a paradise that endures forever. What can a man give in return for his soul? Even if he had the whole world, you could not give it to God. It's already his. The wealthiest man in this world actually owns nothing. So Jeff Bezos of Amazon, he may have a trillionaire status. I think I, think I heard that. He's the first world trillionaire. But truly, he owns nothing. All that he thinks is his belongs to God. I hope he is our brother in Christ. I don't know that of him. I I hope that we get to see him. That's the wishful thinking hope. I don't know. 
But when he comes before the judgment throne of God, there is no amount of money that will be able to buy a ticket in. It doesn't work that way. Everything that we own belongs to the Lord already. You cannot give him anything to save yourself. It doesn't work. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, which is really everyone's sense, whoever is ashamed of Jesus, Jesus will be ashamed of him when he comes again. Uh, so the coming again in the glory of his Father with the holy angels is a reference to the second coming, the last day, the judgment. And Jesus says in Matthew seven twenty one, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever is ashamed of Jesus, whoever will not speak of Jesus, whoever will not share the gospel of Jesus, which is the mission Jesus gave us to do, well, if you were too ashamed to share him here, as you stand before the Heavenly Father on Judgment Day, he will be ashamed to share you with God, the Father. So he won't, and you'll perish. This is a deep law paragraph right here, but it calls us to humble ourselves and to live the life that God has given us to live, not to live this life for us. That's our rebellion, right? God created us to care for the earth, and Jesus gives that life even further purpose in his preaching and teaching that we are to love God and love our neighbor, not ourselves. The sinful nature knows all about how to love the self, but we are called to love God and to love our neighbor. So take up your cross. Deny yourself, die to yourself, and set your mind on the things that the Lord cares about. Amen. Amen.